you're tuned in to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Powerful ideas to rock your restaurant. Here's your host, Roger Bodwin. Guys, thanks for joining me back on the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. You know, labor is the number one challenge that we're all facing in this restaurant business. Number two, increasing sales, how to find new sources of profit, and how to put systems in place in your restaurant that really make your operation turnkey. That's called an exit strategy. We're going to talk about all these things in this episode. I'm very pleased to bring you Mr. John Barker. He's the president and the CEO of the Ohio State Restaurant Association. We're going to be talking about John's philosophies on best practices in the industry, the importance of surrounding yourself with good people. He's going to give us the benefit of his decades of experience in this business, as well as being an executive for most of that time with the Wendy's organization. And on top of that, we're also going to talk about all the benefits and why you should join your own state restaurant association. So stay tuned and don't miss this episode. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Restaurant Rockstars podcast, engaging topics that help restaurants build their brands, rock their profits, deliver amazing guest service experiences, and not only succeed, but really knock it out of the park. We're all about helping operators to find new ways of profiting, um, training their staffs, service, marketing, finance, all sorts of topics. Today, I'm very pleased and privileged to have Mr. John Barker. He is the president and CEO of the Ohio State Restaurant Association. Welcome to the show today, John. Thank you much. Good morning, Roger. It's great to have you, John, because you have such a fascinating and varied history in hospitality and in restaurants. Why don't you tell us about how you first got into this business? Well, before they had child labor laws, uh, my parents opened a restaurant. I was just a kid. And uh, it was called the Rustic Lounge uh, Restaurant Bar in Washington, Pennsylvania, where uh, I grew up. And um, it was a a little bit of a dream for them. Uh, My father did it uh, with his brother and a good friend. And they actually built the restaurant from the inside out. They built their own horseshoe bar uh, shaped like a horseshoe because the three of them had invested in racing horses. And so this was a way to is sort of give it a theme and a, and a bit of a point of differentiation. They had a wishing well back in the, in the day. And uh, it was just fun. I was able to go up a lot, uh, really on the weekends as a kid with my dad, uh, and just help clean up a little bit and work around the restaurant. And used to watch <clears throat> them hand write out their menus for the day and do some orders. Uh, and it was just fascinating to me uh, to, to watch that as, as a young person. And uh, my pay was the amount of money that I'd find on the floor that people would drop back in the day that we all had coins. Uh, yes. And so I might, I might end up with 25 cents for working two or three hours, which was at that time, great pay. How long did you work in that restaurant? And did you do many multiple positions there? No, I was just, I was a kid. Um, and so it was really just tag along uh, okay. with, with my dad and mom. Yeah. Uh, and, but you got the, you, you got, you got bitten, you know, by the, by the hospitality uh, bug at the time. And I could see how much people enjoyed being in the restaurant and being able to come in and it wasn't exactly cheers, but there were regulars that would be there and uh, it was a community. And that's, that's the part that sticks in your head when you have that experience, even as a young person. Well, you know, there's a key point you're making about any successful restaurant. It's really about building a community and customers that are loyal regulars that feel an affinity to that place. They feel like they're family. And that just sort of grows the business from the inside out. You know, if you develop that chemistry between the staff and the customers where people really feel a sense of belonging, that's that cheers formula. People want to go where everyone knows their name. And I think you're hitting on something really solid there. What happened uh, after that? You went on to school probably and yeah, uh, like most, uh, most most folks, I went off and uh, uh, finished uh, my uh, high school years and, uh, and then went off to college. Uh, came all the way back around many years later, got recruited to uh, join the Wendy's company. And uh, so, uh, and I remember when I was recruited, I said, not really sure uh, I want to go in that direction and work for a restaurant company. Didn't, hadn't really thought much about it. And uh, I was fortunate enough to go through the whole process. And then my final interview, and I was still on the fence a little bit. I was, I was impressed uh, because Wendy's is obviously a very large corporation. 
my final uh, interview, if you call it that, was a meeting with Dave Thomas. Um, and Dave was at his absolute zenith at the time in terms yes. of recognition and um, awareness level by Americans. In fact, at that time, our research showed that over 90% of Americans knew who Dave Thomas was and that he represented Wendy's and they had a positive affinity uh, for him. And uh, that was my final, uh, final meeting before I accepted the, accepted the job. Yeah, he was a real personality. He used to do the commercials for Wendy's himself and all that sort of thing. And, you know, definitely an iconic uh, personality in the industry. May I ask you, John, how you were recognized by Wendy's when you weren't really sure you wanted that type of a career? And how did they find you? And how did you get in that program? Yeah, the company I had I was with at the time was American Greetings, which is the big green card sure. uh, social yeah. expressions company. Right. And so a big consumer products uh, organization. And Wendy's at the time, I think, was looking for people who had that sort of background that could, could come to the organization, add some different skill sets and perspectives. Uh, being a food, essentially a food and restaurant operator, I think, looking for other experience. And I was hired at the time that we uh, did a merger with Tim Hortons. Uh, so Tim Hortons is a, the big uh, Canadian yeah. coffee uh, company. Yes. And uh, it was a marriage made in heaven. Uh, I joined right at the time that that happened. Uh, we offered $390 million for Tim Hortons at the time. It was mainly a Canadian company at that moment. And, um, you know, people thought we paid uh, too much for that. We did our valuation. We thought it was fair. We owned Tim Hortons in that merger for 10 years. And, uh, you know, the restaurant business, there's many ways to measure success. Yes. Well, the same store sales comp averaged 7.7% in the 10 years that we owned Tim Hortons. And there was nobody in the industry of any size or scale that had put up those kind of numbers in the history of the restaurant business. And so that $390 million investment turned out to be a $7 billion IPO spin Imagine 10 years that. later. Yeah. That's staggering. Yeah, that was... Uh, that. I would put that in the Hall of Fame of the restaurant industry, no question. And, and a great experience, by the way, because the two brands uh, importantly had very similar sort of uh, views of taking care of franchisees and running restaurants the right way and having a deep-seated set of core values that the organizations uh, really lived with. And the founder of Wendy's, obviously, Dave Thomas, people had a chance to see that because he brought that through his commercials, over 800 commercials in his career, Guinness Book of World Records for founders doing commercials. The founder of Tim Hortons uh, was a hockey player, but his partner, Ron Joyce, built Tim's on the same sort of a bedrock foundation, a fantastic hospitality and a great group of franchisees. And, and that was the similarity between the two, the two organizations. And I was you know, just, I guess, lucky uh, and thrilled to have landed in that and had that experience. Fantastic. So you yeah. were there for 19 years and did you have a multiple, uh, you know, different positions while you were there? I did. Uh, like most people, I came in, I started in what they call the treasury department. It sounds, you know, sort of like uh, the Washington DC. Oh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, it was a large department, it had different functions and, and I came in and, and um, started taking on uh, a number of different responsibilities, including at that time, investor relations, which is a responsibility that a public and traded company has to you know, produce all the materials for Wall Street and uh, constantly raising money, doing re, you know refinancing and, um, uh, and and doing all those. And then over the years, uh, I uh, took on different responsibilities for the organization, including corporate planning. I took over corporate communications, um, government affairs, um, even facilities management, and just you know it was a, it was a great opportunity. And I think as a, as a professional, the ability to grow within the restaurant space and still be with a great company like Wendy's, to be able to have those different experiences. And of course, we hired and had some of the best people that I've ever been associated with at Wendy's. It was just a, it was just a great place to be, great environment, great culture. So you're touching on another critical element that is foundational to restaurant success, and that is the team. And I'm a big believer in developing and nurturing and training and recognizing and rewarding staff. And that was one of the ways that I was really successful in the business. But aside from that, that's a given. You're talking about a company that's at the upper echelon of the restaurant industry. Most of our audience are independent operators. Maybe they've got multi-units, but you know, a company like Wendy's is really, really dialed and they have systems in place across the board and they're competing with the McDonald's and the Burger Kings and all the other top chains. What would you say, John, from your 19 years of, um, you know, a career there, 
advice that or, or things that you saw and how they operated and things that they did that, you know, might be something that uh, an average independent operator could take away to help run a more successful operation? There's no question that, that you know, one of the reasons people join franchise organizations because you get you basically get a system. Here's how to run it. Here's what to spend on things. Here's your food cost. Here's your supply chain. Here's the way you build a restaurant. They, they give you the blueprint uh, for all of that. Of course, you pay. You pay a price for that, and that's in the form of a royalty. And typically, you uh, join a, a buying co-op, and there may be a percentage cost to that. You join a marketing co-op, there's a percentage cost to those type of things. But if you if you want that environment around you, that's the reason people uh, join uh, and become a franchisee. I think independents, um, if they don't step into that, they have to think about, do they have the skill sets and are they surrounded by experts in some areas? Because very few people have all the skills right. that you need to run even a one, you know, one location restaurant. I think it, uh, it, it can be overwhelming uh, because I know, you know, one of the things that, that we advise people is let's take a look at your entire business plan, not just your culinary, which is where a lot of people start when they come to us and say, hey, I love the restaurant business. I'd really like to get into it. What do I need to do? And I say to them, well, why are you interested in being in the restaurant? They say, well, I'm a really good cook and my friends like to come over to my house and they tell me I should open a restaurant. I go, I've heard that about 50,000 times. Business, isn't it, John? Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's a little more complicated than that. And we just, we try to get people to think through all the stages they'll need to go through to run any any small business it's 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 complicated if you have the passion for hospitality and you like to be around people and hire people and train people and build a culture the restaurant business is a great place to be but that doesn't mean you also like to do the accounting and the payroll and figure out your technology and your workers comp and all those other you might call them back office or boring things but if you don't get those things right you might not make it yeah, and the statistics are still staggering to this day. You know, so many failures in the first two years, the first five years, and if you make it past five years, you're doing well, but that doesn't guarantee your future success, and it just goes on and on and on from there. Let me go back to that question. You answered it uh, to, to a great extent, but it just trig it keeps triggering more and more thoughts that I think will benefit the audience. So what would you say back then was Wendy's competitive advantage in competing against some of these other national chains, international chains, really, you know, what would you say, you know, you did well uh, that, that helped you to succeed and, and, you know, compete effectively against those other companies, which we don't have to name, but everyone knows who they are. Yeah. Well, I love them all now because in my role, every yeah. brand and every company is my favorite restaurant. Uh, but okay. at point. the time, yeah, at the time I was very loyal to Wendy's and, and, but I would have looked at this through the lens uh, fairly for whatever company I thought about joining. I think Wendy's point of differentiation, really, if you if you just go back and look at it through the classic lens of how do you build a brand. And Dave Thomas didn't think this way probably when he started in 1969, but where he ended up shortly was, we're going to have a point of differentiation on the product. And uh, how do we do that? Simply fresh beef. Uh, in every restaurant, and no one at the time was doing that. If any, if any chain, no, everybody was doing frozen. And then he had um, distinguishing products that you couldn't find anywhere else, and they were subtle. But when you think about Wendy's, had a frosty, different than a general milkshake. And, and uh, Wendy's had chili. Nobody else had chili. Wendy's had baked potatoes. Wendy's was the first with drive-through windows. Wendy's, uh, you know, didn't <clears throat> set the bar on training. Uh, I think McDonald's probably did the best at that in, in the early days when they were, you know, building up that, that, uh, that chain. But I think Wendy's took the training in the restaurant and then took it one step further and instilled that sense of values. And Wendy's has a set of values that Dave sort of scribbled out back in 1969. And by the way, they still use them today, 50 years later. Mm -hmm. Those five values or actually, and I made sure this happened while I was there. Uh, last few years I was there, and we did a complete uh, transformation of the, of the headquarters. We actually uh, wrote the values permanently on the wall in the lobby. So when you walk in there, every employee, every new hire sees those on that wall. And then, you know, everybody speaks about those in an organization. And they then become more than just, just some words. They become the cultural touchstones. And, and that went all the way down through the franchisees, and, and then 
you know, the way that we would select franchisees. You know, there was, it, it, at the time we were trying to make sure that we brought in franchisees who could be good at the restaurant business, but also shared Dave's view of these values. And, and some of them are so simple, they're not all that complicated, but, you know, treat others with respect, you know, uh, give something back. I mean, you just, you go through some of these and you say, these are no, as Dave used to say, no brainers, but they're actually hard to execute across uh, 7,000 locations. And um, I think that was the people differentiation. The product was one, but the other one I think was, was the people. You know, I think you're touching on something else that, that triggers a thought. I mean, it's human nature. Some people think that, you know, I'm going to follow this formula to a certain extent, but then I got a better way of doing this, or I'm going to put my own stamp on that. I'm going to change the tried and the true formula, and then they run into trouble. And, you know, I remember watching that movie about McDonald's and Ray Kroc, the founder, where some of the first franchisees that he sells, and they're bringing chicken in, and they're, you know, there's trash in the parking lot. And he just goes absolutely bananas because obviously they're not following that core mission statement and, and the philosophies that you just talked about. It's absolutely essential. You also mentioned the differentiating points that Chili and the baked potatoes and the fresh meat. You also had square burgers, like no one else do, you know, did square burgers. So now we're talking about one of my favorite topics and that's hooks. You know, you can't have too many hooks that set you apart from your competition, which then leads to building a brand. And, and so many restaurants that I come across, they're trying to run restaurants, but they're not building brands. And that's really what sets you apart from the competition as well. So everything that you've learned obviously lends itself to sure you want to be independent and you want to have a very unique concept but that unique concept should also be about you know thinking your, no matter how small your restaurant is just you know creating a brand and that's through your people through your systems through your offerings that may be different from your competitors would you agree with that absolutely and so today obviously in the role i'm in today i, I get to see how people execute this small brands maybe it's a one location, 1,000 square foot restaurant somewhere in the state of Ohio, all the way up to our mid-sized chains and our very large chains. And you see the ones that, that are growing, their sales volumes and their customer counts are going up every year. They don't really talk so much about margin, although somebody is watching that profit margin. Yes. What, they're, what they're really trying to do is grow penny profit. They're looking at how do I grow the cash because great companies are ones that are building true cash flow over time. And uh, that might mean you sacrifice margin for a while in the short term. Um, and for example, that might mean you don't take prices up radically, even though your input cost might go up a bit. You try to deal with those over maybe a, maybe a two to three year period of time, as opposed to tomorrow, uh, everything on your menu goes up 25% because customers notice. Of course. And it's, um, and it's subtle things like that that you learn in great uh, people, you know, great operators who get this and understand that they have this important and sometimes fragile relationship with the customer and they, and they honor that and they think about it in a longer term. Those are the ones you tend to see stick it out and continue to grow. And, and every state has great operators like this. That's, that's what's, what's terrific about the restaurant industry. In Ohio, we just, uh, for example, uh, in January this year, we have our industry awards and we recognize the best operators, people who innovate in, in all sorts of different categories like that. But we had a Hall of Fame that, that uh, we inducted uh, three organizations and their leaders into our Hall of Fame. And each one of them has a real clear point of differentiation with their companies, uh, what they do. Uh, they hire people, their retention rates are very good relative to, to their competitors. And people speak about the brands in, their, in a reverent, in a reverency. And one, one of the people, just give you an example, uh, we put in um, Billy Ingram, and Billy was the founder of White Castle. <clears throat> in White Castle, you may be yes. familiar with it, right? I remember White Castle. Another square hamburger company. There's a trend here. But, uh, yeah. Uh, well, I was a kid in Bronx, New York, visiting relatives, and there was a White Castle there. And I don't know right. if they started in New York, but I knew it was pretty big there at one time. But this takes right. back 45 years ago. Right. Well, they're, they're closing it on their 100-year anniversary. So they're... Probably figured it out by now. But, yeah, uh, they're doing okay. Yeah, but they, you know, so each of these organizations, you know, people have this reverence for this White Castle brand. And you might think 100 years in, they're, they're not really innovating. They're just riding on their coattails. They innovate like 
crazy. Their product innovation would make your head spin. The things that they're coming out to. Yeah. They were the first national chain to uh, bring the Impossible Burger to the menu. And, uh, and they've done very well with it. And they continue to innovate with all sorts of products. And um, uh, they talk a, a lot about their family. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a family-led organization. It's not public, but they talk about their family even at the restaurant level, how they treat people, and, and um, it's impressive. It's, it's, you see this, and you start to see these stamps of these companies, and what, uh, and what the best ones are doing. It's impressive. For sure, lead yeah. by example. That's fantastic. I, I, you know, I love stories like that, John. That, that, that definitely speaks near and dear to my heart. Let's talk about what you're seeing out there. What are uh, some of the biggest challenges facing, well, your membership, uh, operators across the country? You know, that's, that's the same group. What mm-hmm. are the biggest challenges in running restaurants right now? Yeah, that, it, this is true, really, no matter what state you're in. Um, Ohio is no different. Uh, there's perhaps an overbuilding uh, of, uh, you know, how many locations that we have of restaurants, uh, there seems to be a zeal towards people opening more and more locations. When it's a really good operator and they go from 12 units to 14 in a year, that seems very reasonable from a growth standpoint. But sometimes you'll see these operators say, I have 10 today and I want 50 in two years. And you know, I've seen this over and over and over and over again in this business. People that grow too quickly tend not to be able to grow into that. Uh, it, it's too fast and they have the wheels start to come off a little bit. <clears throat> so we're seeing a little bit of that. <clears throat> we're seeing a shakeout uh, by operators who <clears throat> their point of differentiation isn't clear uh, anymore. Um, they might have been really good 10, 20 years ago, and now they're really struggling to reinvent themselves. Um, and, and part of it is <clears throat> the American consumer uh, today is very um, discerning. Uh, they know much more about food today than they did even say 10, 15, 20 years ago. And part of that's the proliferation of the cooking channels and, and you know, glorified the celebrity chefs. And it's just, it's fun. Everybody talks about food all the time. It's the number one item Instagrammed every day, uh, other than maybe puppies uh, or, or somewhere close. But uh, yes, um, but it, there may be a little bit too much growth in terms of just the uh, square footage. And the numbers coming out of the National Restaurant Association on this said that roughly in the last say, 12 months that they tracked this, roughly 60,000 restaurants open in the United States, but 50,000 closed in the same period. So the net number is up about 10, about 10,000, yeah. but that's mm-hmm. a lot of attrition. Yes, you know, 50,000 restaurants are closing. And so those are the ones that you know, sometimes it's as simple as you lose a lease and you have to close. And, and so that's natural in this business. Sometimes it's people retiring. Sometimes people just want to get out of the industry and move to something else. But a fair amount of it, Roger, is just restaurants. Uh, they get a little upside down. Their PL isn't working anymore. Uh, the restaurant's not running uh, as tightly as it should. And then suddenly they, they can't make they don't have the cash flow to make the payments. And uh, we do see a lot of that. So what we try to do uh, is make sure people have eyes wide open when they go into the industry about here's what it's going to take, here are the facts, here are the statistics. Make sure you understand all this before you step in. If it's your entire life savings that you're going to put into a business, which a lot of people do. I mean, people love this business so much that they're willing to do it. Uh, we just we want to improve their odds that they're going to be successful if they do it. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest causes of failure, you know, historically in restaurants is being undercapitalized, not having enough money to see it through and turn the corner. And the next thing you know, you're out of business. But you also touched on, you know, losing a lease. And I remember being, when I first started, I had absolutely no experience in this business. I opened a restaurant not knowing anything about it. And thankfully, I had business skills and I was able to figure it out pretty quickly. But I had a lease that was a very challenging one in the beginning. And, you know, the, we were pretty successful right from the get-go based on offering a very unique concept. But the landlord saw that and he just kept wanting to raise the rent every year and all this kind of stuff. And it was a marginal location. There were problems with the building. And I knew that if we were ever going to succeed as a restaurant, the end goal was owning our own real estate and getting out from under a challenging lease situation where we might be out of business next week because, you know, he's turning the building into a condominium complex or something. And I've right. seen that happen to very successful restaurants, even in Portland, Maine, 
you know, there was a very successful Mexican place, lines out the door for years and years and years in a great location. It was an old gas station. And then all of a sudden the property owner decided that a condo building there made higher and better use sense. And the next thing you know, they had to move. And now they're in another location and they're still doing okay, but it's not nearly what that first location was. And this is a common, you know, thing that happens all the time. So I guess that would be, I'm wondering, do you think that's good advice to, to somehow move towards that goal the longer you're in business to try to find a location that you can own and operate that's, that's highly visible, but that you control versus being controlled by a, a, you know, a landlord? Two things. If you can have your own people in our business called own the dirt, so you own the land, that's yes. number one. Right. If you can also then own the building, so you can totally control that and you you're able at that point to negotiate your, your terms of a, of a mortgage or depending on who you're you know, getting uh, uh, money from yeah. and you control all that. And if you don't have the business skills and get somebody who, who does have the business skills to help you negotiate all that. If you can't have the dirt and you can't own the building, but you're going to lease, I think it's very simple. You need to go out and get somebody who's on your side who knows this business really well. and knows, for example, the average square footage cost that a restaurant in different categories can afford. So for example, categories and sales volumes, and there's an equation that we use in this industry that says, what can you afford per square foot? And then you have to make sure that in that lease, it doesn't have an escalating lease over the years. Right. Or one tied to sales, because if it's tied to sales, you're never actually, as a percent of sales, you're actually never gonna get out of the pressure. Uh, so you have to make sure you don't, and I know so many people who sign leases like this, they just don't have the background experience they go through some sort of a negotiation with a landlord and they're under the impression this is sort of natural and there's no room for movement on this and they're so excited about opening a business they go ahead and do it and say i'll just figure it out i'll just i'll figure it out even though i projected sales at 1.1 million to afford this lease i'm gonna have to do 1.6 we'll just figure it out and and you know how that goes oftentimes. absolutely yeah, yeah. What role, I mean, I see technology changing and there's an app for everything today in the restaurant business, everything from online ordering to something that controls your entire back of house and inventory and the software choices are overwhelming. Are you seeing a lot of, you know, restaurants, your membership, just restaurants in this country adopting a lot of that new technology? Do you see us still a lot of old school people doing things, you know, the, the rudimentary way? I mean, where does all that play in? I mean, it's just a staggering amount of solutions for every aspect of running this business now. Yeah, I think um, we see a, a number of independents who are able to have very basic technology and still be successful. If they have a one location and they're in it every day and they're able to manage their inventory and track labor and maybe have some basic payroll skills. But that's the anomaly anymore. Uh, we see that. Um, what we see actually today is there's some advantage to a little bit of scale and expertise in, in the technology area. You definitely have to have a great POS. Um, you need to figure that out. And depending on the type of business you have, if you're fine dining, one sort of POS there, all the way to if you're a hot dog stand. Uh, you know, so really, it really depends what kind of technology you need there. The more sophisticated and larger you get where you might need a higher sales volume, then you start getting into things like, am I going to take online ordering? which can be complicated if, if you don't really know what you're doing. What's your website look like? Is it an interactive website? Do you have really good social media? Do you control your social media footprint? And many of our operators, when we talk to them, say, I don't have a social media imprint. We're not in that world. And I said, yes, you do. Let's show you what it is. And we actually show them that the customer has curated their social media for them. Uh -huh. Sometimes it's not flattering. And so, you know, our advice is you have to control that. And then, um, of course, one of the biggest pieces that's working through the industry right now is delivery or not. And then if I do delivery, do I control the delivery or do I have third party uh, do it? And um, these, are, these are tough things for people to figure out on their own. And we know that. So at our restaurant association, we started a technology committee. And so we have a board of directors, about 28 people on our board. And we have people sit on different committees and the tech committee is made up of some board members and then some outside experts. And then we have these discussions on a regular basis uh, so that people can learn. And then we actually publish some of our findings and other information on a section on our website. So our members can go there and depending on their topic of interest, they can go in and read about it, get some more information, call myself or somebody on my team. And then if they have specific needs, like for example, if they just need credit card processing, we can connect them to somebody to help them with that. If they need 
third-party delivery expertise. We just did a, a very large conference earlier this year where we brought in a national research firm to walk through all the trends, online ordering and delivery. Uh, and, we, and we presented that to a group of uh, C-suite members of ours uh, in the restaurant industry, which helped them at least understand what the factual data is and then have a dialogue about is it right for them is it, you know when is it right for them to move into this and and the the thing is the facts and the evidence are overwhelming in this younger consumers are moving more and more to online ordering and delivery and so at some point if your customer base doesn't figure out a way to get its fair share of that how are you going to be able to continue to grow your your sales it's just a question that i think operators have to ask themselves well, you know, talking social media, you know, uh, obviously the owner, operator, general manager, there's a thousand details in the restaurant business and they can't obviously be adept, as you mentioned, at every one of them. They've got to fill in the missing pieces with people who are strong. But I don't know any restaurant out there that doesn't have a staff that is all over social media all the time. And I would pick a person, you know, we did this starting out. I really didn't care much about social media, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years, 15, however long it was. And I found someone that was really great at it and they became our social media presence. They understood our brand. They were a longtime employee and they started posting and then they encouraged our customers to start posting. And that was a brand building technique unto itself. Yeah. So every restaurant has somebody that if you don't know how to do it or what to do, you know, tap your staff and say, hey, what are your ideas here? And let's brainstorm this thing and let's put pictures of our food up and let's definitely, you know, monitor our online reviews because as you mentioned that can be very very damaging especially mm -hmm. if you're you got your head in the sand about what people are saying about your operation yeah well and monitoring even facebook um and some of the other services that are out there right. and there's a ton of apps so uh, i'm not telling people what exactly but it could be as simple as yelp but if you have three or four bad reviews out there and those are the top right. of yelp when, when somebody opens up to try to decide am i gonna get it i don't know where i'm gonna go tonight and I'm going to use one of these apps to help me decide. And it has bad things to say uh, about your restaurant, your people, your product. That right there can be negative marketing for you. And so you, you, have, to, you have to pay attention to it. Yeah, and it's as, even as important as reaching your customers when they're still in your restaurant and making it clear to them that you really truly care that everyone have a great experience. And if everything wasn't, you know, perfect, then we want to know about it. And then encouraging people to, you know, leave a positive post if they had a great time. And that's one way to build reviews also. But there's so many customers out there that, that uh, you know, that come into a restaurant, they might have a less than stellar experience. And then instead of bringing it to the restaurant's attention, they're just going to go straight to social media and slam that restaurant. Right. Justified it's, or not, you know. It's a, it, it is part of the world we live in today. So, yeah. you, you know, obviously you want to do a great job for all your customers, but there are going to be times mm -hmm. where people aren't happy. And um, so let's say they do make a post uh, about it and have something to say. You want to be able to respond to that quickly and get back to that person and um, and try to make it make it right for that individual and invite them back. And these basics of customer service, obviously. we At any big company like Wendy's, we had a a customer service department that reported up to me when I was there, we would reach out in person to individuals who had a bad experience and, and figured out a way to get a message to us. It could have come through the restaurant. It might have been online. It could have been a phone call, email, all those. And, uh, and we really focused on that. You have to because losing those customers, if you don't get them, we used to have a, a bunch of research on this. If we didn't get back to them, some, sometime between zero and 72 hours to start to correct the situation, the ability to get them back started to decline appreciably. There's too many choices today. So. Absolutely true. Let's talk about labor, John. What's happening in Ohio? Are you having a major labor shortage or restaurants that you represent having problems finding and keeping a great staff? That's the number one, uh, number one issue. We, we do a survey of our members on a regular basis and we ask them a number of questions, but one of the questions we've been asking for three years since I've been here is, you know, rate, identify and rate the problems that you're facing as a restaurant tour, food service operator, and even hospitality, which would extend into that hotel lodging and, and uh, even the grocery business. Mm -hmm. And used to be uh, workforce was number two, then it became number one by a little bit, and now it's number one, and there's nothing close to it. Um, so it is the issue uh, for this industry. There are very few operators who tell us I'm fully staffed and everything's good. Very few operators tell us that. 
And I make it a point to ask them what's going on, talk to me about your team, talk to me about your workforce, your recruiting, your retention. And what we're seeing is a higher degree of turnover than uh, what we've ever seen. And part of it's just the unemployment rate. You, you're truly below 4%. If you, if you look beyond the government statistics and, and everybody who wants to work today essentially has a job. And so people and are able to, to, yeah. to move around. Well, this business can be really hard to compete with other businesses that can afford to pay higher wages as well. Right. And, and so that's a, that's a big part of it. Um, within the last month, we've seen announcement after announcement by um, companies saying we're moving to $15 across the board, minimum wage, $16. We've seen um, a few talk about 20 21, I think one of the big banks, Chase, has said I think they're moving to $20 uh, minimum wage. Different industries have the ability to do that based on their profit margins. And I think we would be foolish to not to believe that banks, for example, are not figuring out a way to pass those costs on. They are not taking a lower profit. At the bottom. Those are publicly traded companies. So if they're paying $20 an hour for somebody who walks into a, a bank and says, I have zero skills and, uh, and I want to work for you today, and they start paying them $20 an hour, it's interesting the way the math works on this. If you study econ, the person who was making $20, who had gotten to $20 by working hard for the last 10 years and getting promotions and moving their way up, they're going to demand $25 an hour. And so the compression on your labor line, if you study this, is it's, uh, it's dramatic. I, uh, I know that the restaurant industry is one that will struggle uh, to pay those sorts of minimum wages. We have the uh, ability, fortunately, in, in fine dining and casual dining, where we have the tip opportunity for people. And uh, so that's a great resource for our industry. And I think that helps tremendously uh, if you're in that particular sect, those sectors in our industry, because in that case, you get rewarded for being a great host or server by being fantastic at your job and delivering great hospitality. And we all know people who are making $25, $30 an hour uh, working as servers and hosts in host in restaurants and uh, it's a great career for them and so that's an opportunity that our space has the problem I think in our in our industry is uh, in places where you don't have service you, have, you you can't make it up with the tip and so therefore that is that's the biggest pressure line that I think many operators have this is fascinating stuff to me, John, and you're taking me in three different directions in my head at once, and I don't want to forget any of these. So I want to talk about uh, an industry summit that I went to in my home state months ago. And then I also, well, let me take you there first. So it was a really alarming statistic because this whole summit was all about this workforce challenge that restaurants are having. And I heard that it literally costs an operator approximately well, let me back up a second. The average tenure of a new restaurant employee is about four months. And every time that you have to hire that person, get them up to speed in their job, lose that person, and then retrain somebody else and replace that person, it costs a restaurant somewhere between three and $4,000 in lost time, wages, productivity, and all those things. And no restaurant can survive if that's the turnover rate and if that's what it's costing you every time you're doing this. So that just hit me like a, a ton of bricks over the head. And, and that was clearly, and then there were operators. There were so many operators that I talked to. And I know that your audience, uh, your membership, our audience listening to this podcast would, would corroborate this, but they're admitting to the fact that they're hiring anyone with a pulse. Get them in off the street and I'll put anybody on the floor. And that is a short-term solution to a bigger problem that's going to come around because they're not delivering great experiences to the customers. They don't have a true desire to serve the public. I mean, you're probably seeing wherever we go, right? You see the signs in the window, help wanted everywhere. And to me, that was, that was not the right approach to hiring. You should be recruiting people, not just hiring someone else's problems off the street and then getting what you get and putting them in front of the public. And that's the first impression your customer has. So, you know, that was one of the things that, uh, that you just struck me with, with, with this conversation. Yeah, our, our operators, um, as we talk to them, they give us examples of putting out an ad for entry-level workers. And, and, and we've heard this many times. I had 10, 20, 30 people apply, set up the interviews. 
set the interviews up the day of the interviews where people were coming in and they have appointments over a couple day period of time they uh in some cases get one person to actually physically show up for the interview out of all the all that work and so yes. it can be disheartening um <clears throat> you really have to build a network of of people that uh, you can count on so your core staff you work with them to be ambassadors of your brand of your restaurant to absolutely right help help you reach out find people that's the best way uh, to do it it's difficult it's it's and i you know we've not been in a situation like this i mean you and i are old enough to have seen many cycles in business and i can remember when unemployment was high in the teens for real and so people got a job they didn't leave they couldn't leave because they were afraid that there would be the next next job but we're in a different environment um we're essentially a, a no unemployment environment and so you think about what you have to build in terms of that brand going back to our earlier conversation the brand and the culture and having people want to work there and turn it into a career um and you're not going to get that with high school and college kids we all know that that's a you know oftentimes that's a first job second jobs they're deciding what they're going to do once people make the decision i want to be in the restaurant business what you want them to do say i want to be in the restaurant business and i want to be part of that brand and we have many examples i'm sure you do in your home state here in ohio we have a uh, some great big fine dining brands and uh, their brands are the kind of brands where people say i actually want to be part of that organization i would be proud to work for that that organization and um that doesn't come quickly that you have to earn that over a long period of time and i think that's a point of differentiation I think you can control to some extent the longevity of staff, even with younger people, people on their way to college, that sort of thing. This is the business, I don't need to tell anyone this, especially yourself, John, but this is really the business where you can start out in the dish pit and own your own restaurant someday without a formal education. You can work your way up through any aspects. And I actually, I could share stories with you. My very first employee at age 15 was closing my restaurant three nights a week, you know, three weeks into the job working for me. And the kid took a real interest in the business. I could tell he had passion, he had drive. He wanted to learn as much as he could. And I personally mentored him. He, I think he worked for me for about, well, he started out at age 15 and I think he stayed with me for 15 years. And then he only left to start his own restaurant. So mm -hmm. that's what's possible. He was a dishwasher at age 15. He was closing the place within three weeks. That's, that's, a, that's a great success story. And you had, to be proud of, you had to be proud of that. You would rather that happen than somebody say, well, I, you know, the restaurant business is for me, but uh, I'm going to take a new job every five months and, and move around. And if, if they're doing it because they want to, I want to work in fine dining, and then I might want to work for a chain, and I want to work for an independent, so they can have all those experiences, that's also okay. Um, uh, and there's nothing we can can do about that other than to encourage people. If that's right. if that's their dream, if that's their passion, and then eventually lead up to maybe they take a leadership position in a restaurant, become a manager or assistant general manager or above the store manager. You know, I had the experience in you know, a long career at Wendy's to watch many people come in and start literally at the bottom first job. They're cleaning the parking lot, washing the windows, and 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 uh, the chief operating officer of Wendy's today is a guy who started off like that delivering pizzas and today he's the chief operating officer of you know the third largest hamburger restaurant company in the world it is you think about our industry it is the industry of opportunity no question about it and i think the key point that we're talking about here i believe john that there there you know there's different styles of management and leadership but i think the key nugget here is how you nurture and develop that staff determines your future success and determines lower turnover you can be one of those dictatorial managers that just tells people what to do and barks orders that doesn't really build what i call the dream team and then you can lead by example and build respect and create this family of staff where they don't want to leave where you know, they, they might think the grass is always greener, but then they leave and they come back because they realize that I had a pretty good situation here. Yep, absolutely. Let's go back to, we basically touched a little bit on the tip credit, and that is legislation that comes across states all the time where legislators just don't understand the tip credit. They want to eliminate it. They suddenly want to pay, you know, servers minimum wage instead of, you know, that whole thing. And that could be really devastating for restaurants as well. Have you come across that in Ohio? We have. We've had um, a number of challenges in the state, and we, of course, monitor very carefully what's going on in other states. We work with the National Restaurant Association and other state restaurant associations when these things are, are popping up. 
what we're seeing is a combination of minimum wage movement uh, to, to move it you know, to a permanent higher minimum wage. Uh, and then secondly, eliminate the tip credit. <clears throat> On the minimum wage, I think that every state's gonna manage this slightly differently, but it, it should because the conditions in California are different than they are in Michigan or Maine or Florida. Everywhere you go, it's, it's a little bit different in terms of what an average uh, individual might need and what, what really does somebody deserve when they walk into a business for the very first time with zero skills. Uh, I know when I started uh, back, you know, back in the day, as we say, right? Yes. Um, uh, minimum wage was barely enough to pay, you know, for the gas you know, to, to get back and forth to work. But I had no skills. I was going to that job so that I could learn skills, and I understood that that was part of the equation. Uh, Society has turned that upside down a little bit and turned this into a political uh, commentary, as opposed to what's the right thing to do. And I, you know, you hope that over time, for example, in Ohio. We have a minimum wage, um, it's 8.55 an hour, and it's tied to inflation, so it goes up, CPI goes up every year. Mm -hmm. And we think that's a that's kind of a good way to set the minimum wage. We also know we can't find an operator in the restaurant business that's paying 8.55 an hour to anybody, uh, because you couldn't, you couldn't hire, you couldn't hire anybody for, for the true minimum wage. Correct. So some, some restaurants are starting at 10, others are starting at 12, whatever their business can't afford to do. And then as they get great people and they learn, they get better skills, they graduate them up to, you know, a more reasonable wage and one that if they decide to stay in the industry can become, you know, the phrase we hear is living, living wage. And, and we support that yes. 100%, no question about it. The tip credit is completely a political ploy. Uh, and it's not one that anybody in business would ever do if they understood the facts. And importantly, you're supposed to talk to the constituents before you make a decision like and oftentimes this is driven you know by people who are trying to get elected or reelected and don't really care what the impact is and as we talked about earlier if you eliminate the tip credit we will have people who will step out of those jobs because they would make less money at $15 an hour we've seen a few examples of this in the industry where people have said we're going to eliminate tips in our restaurants we're going to pay people a certain wage everybody's going to get the exact wage it's not going to be any more tips and customers literally revolted because they have been we've grown up in a society where we thank somebody for great service by our tip and we control that tip and we give if we have great service somebody might give a 25 percent tip if you give terrible service you might get a five percent tip but you get what you deserve and if you're if you're great at that if you're great at hospitality you're going to get more of the 20 percent plus tips and if you have a, a good ship and it's a busy day you're going to walk out of there with more money than you could ever make at minimum wage. And the minute that a legislator hears this and has, and I know it happened in Maine, right? This came up in the state of Maine and uh, legislators tried to kind of pass this, eliminate the tip and servers came mm -hmm. and, uh, and, yes. and kind of screamed from the mountaintops about this and said, we do not want this. We want our businesses to have the tip credit because that's a much better situation for us and they were able to reverse that. Uh, and so we have to be vigilant on that and just make sure that our legislators, and people in DC and people at our state houses truly understand the facts so that they make a good decision on this. You touched on something that I was gonna ask you, so let me revisit it. Uh, we were talking about that controversial idea of eliminating tipping in restaurants. Are you seeing any operators in Ohio actually doing that with any success? Not really. Uh, I think people, uh, we did, there were a couple chains that tried it um, and they had very bad reactions to that. I know that uh, one of the more celebrated uh, ones that I had read about is Danny Meyer's restaurants in New York. He's, I think he started the trend actually. Or at least right. right. And so for some brands, maybe it could work. You know, I can't say that, you know, everything's for everybody, but as we talk to, we have 22,000 restaurants in the state of Ohio. Um, as we talk to them, I don't talk to anybody who is who is an operator who is for this. I don't talk to anybody who is a server who's for eliminating the credit. So it's very clear to us. That doesn't mean that somebody can't come up with a better model and test it right. in their restaurant. That's called innovation. Uh, but as the system is set up now, the tip credit is a great thing for the restaurant industry. You know, I travel the country quite a bit with with restaurant rock stars, and I eat out quite a bit, as you can imagine, and you know, I see, 
I see that there's a sometimes a sense of entitlement. You were talking about service. And if someone delivers a really, truly amazing service experience, then they should get a 25% tip. But if someone delivers an average, ordinary experience, and, and it's obvious that they don't really care about what they're doing, then clearly they don't deserve, you know, that type of tip. But nonetheless, in certain, you know, service personnel's minds, there's this sense of entitlement where every tip ought to be 18 or 20%, no matter what type of service I deliver. You know, and that's that's a real challenge to this business because again, your your staff represent your brand. They're leaving impressions. And I've even, you know, I've been in situations or I've seen situations where a server would actually approach the guest and ask why that gratuity was was left, you know, which is completely taboo. I don't know if any of this any of these stories, you know, have crossed your desk at all, but do you, do you see that? Um, and that comes down to the training that, that restaurant operators offer their staffs and, and how they want, you know, that person to represent their brand. And if there's because, no training, then all these things can sabotage a, a, a company's business, you know? Yeah, I agree. It's called the heart of hospitality. You hear it in different ways, yeah. but you either have it or you don't. And uh, if you hire somebody who doesn't have that, and after a short period of time, you realize that this isn't really for them, then you need to either find another position for them in the restaurant uh, or perhaps maybe the restaurant industry is not for them it's, it's clearly not for everybody some people who are introverts and they don't really like the interaction with people and they can't take a, a little bit of a you know criticism or the pressure because it's not easy to be a server particularly in a busy restaurant you're, you're busy and you're you have to be attentive and you have to focus on many things it's, it's a little bit of a juggling act Definitely. when people when people get good at it you can just tell they naturally are smiling they're having fun with the guests they uh -huh. encouraging different things they're describing things on the menu they're saying hey um any special occasion i mean there's just there's all these prompts that are just naturally coming out of the person and they make the entire experience better even if the food was just okay a great service experience can take that rating at say on a 10 point scale from being a five to a seven and people might say well Maybe the food was off just a wee little bit. I didn't get the exact topping I wanted or something like that. The server made it better for me. And, and sometimes it's as simple as, wait a minute, I brought this out. I had the wrong topping. Let me go back. We're going to get you a new, we're going to get you a new order, right? And it's genuine. And boy, I got to tell you, that brings that customer back many times after that. It's just those things. It's real simple. Yeah, I mean, that's just one of those critical details. And as operators, you know, there's a lot of balls in the air and we can't let any of them drop. I, you know, I, I often say that I call this the business of a thousand details, because even if you get 990 of those details correct, it's the 10 you miss that the customer always sees. So there's just so many balls in the air and so many things to focus on. But I think the bottom line, um, would you agree, are you seeing operators that aren't taking inventory, they don't know their prime costs, they're struggling with the bottom line, they might have busy restaurants, they're filling their seats, but they're wondering why the bank account's not growing? Yeah, we do see that. And that's where what we talked to them about is let's, let's help you get somebody, if that's not your thing, let's get somebody that can help you with that. And it could be, uh, it could be a consultant who understands many aspects to the business. It could be just a great accounting partner who understands the PL and the restaurant industry. And so we, we're very focused on curating a number of what we refer to as vendor partners as yes. a state association for restaurants. It's important for us to have that. And so we'll go out and make sure that we know people in different, we call them categories or centers of excellence and bring them in as our vendors. And we question them. And I'm looking for people who already have a book of business in their restaurant space. So they already understand the restaurant space. So whether it's an accounting firm or an auditing firm or a consultant or somebody that knows technology or even our attorneys, we have a legal center at the Ohio Restaurant Association. And the three firms that we have in that legal center are ones we vetted very carefully. They already had a book of business in the restaurant. They already know the business. And so when we recommend one of our members to go and talk to somebody who's a vendor, we have a high degree of confidence that they're gonna do a good job help them in that particular area of expertise. And that's what you need to do in this business. Make sure that you surround yourself because you probably can't have on your staff if you're a small operator, you cannot have your own expert attorney, you cannot have your own expert financial firm. You can maybe not be able to have all those people working in your office, but you can have them as your partners. Absolutely, yeah, that's sure. the team. Right? You need, the, you need an attorney, you need a good, uh, well, you need a good bookkeeper if you can't do it yourself, but more importantly, you need a great CPA that's gonna save you money at tax time. Right. All these things are critically important. 
Right. But we can go on and on about that. <laughs> Every category, when you think about it, right? So that's, I think that's the advantage of joining your association. Um, you know, and we actually encourage people to maybe even, you know, for join your association and, and maybe there's another professional group where you can go out and learn things. Maybe it's your local rotary. It could be your local chamber, you know, so that you have an opportunity to be around other business people who have, you're running a restaurant, they may be running a grass cutting company, but some things are similar and you want to be able to have these mentors and you want to have these opportunities to just learn. Well, what are you doing? You know, how are you managing your piano? Who's your, who's your bookkeeper? Why are they good? And, and just things like that. It's lifelong learning. You just you have to keep working at it. Yeah, I would say it's absolutely foundational to belong to the association. And you have so many benefits for your members, not just in terms of, you know, the partners that are going to offer great deals to your members, but their buying groups, you know, where people just collaborate and the economies of scale are there. You've got serve safe programs, resources that, you know, every operator needs. So that's really the benefit of the state restaurant association. We do all that for you. So we make it sort of a one-stop shop. And many of our operators <clears throat> will come to us when they're getting started and they need workers' comp. So we have a great workers' comp program, which gives them a, a, a significant discount. Or health insurance, because many of our operators, they might want to uh, insure maybe 10 people on their restaurant team, or five people, or two people. And historically, that's been a, a place that was very difficult to solve for particularly in the last, say, five, five years with everything that's going on in healthcare, we just solved that by coming up with the National Restaurant Association came up with a uh, restaurant trust uh, health benefit plan that's specifically designed for people who need to insure between two and 49 people in their restaurant. And that's always been <clears throat> the sweet spot for independents that couldn't easily be satisfied without paying exorbitant rates. And so... That's one that just uh, was put together in the last year, the partnership with United Healthcare, um, and so we're hearing good results from that kind of thing. Um, we, uh, of course, ServSafe is absolutely center of the plate for every restaurant. The number one responsibility we have at any restaurant is to take care of our customers and make sure they're safe and our workers. So ServSafe clearly helps us uh, in our restaurants do that. But it's every category that you can imagine. We're building these relationships, and most state restaurant associations are doing the same thing. So the member comes, they can say, I'm joining this because I, I want to have access to experts. I want to have some political uh, backing. I want to have somebody who's protecting my industry. Your restaurant association does that. I want somebody who's promoting the heck out of the business in my business if I'm a member. We do that. Um, and so it, to me, if you know, I was a restaurant uh, restaurateur joining my, my association, would literally be, as, as, as we laughed earlier, Dave Thomas, no-brainer. Um, mm -hmm. The amount of money you save easily pays for your membership, and you get all these other benefits as well, including camaraderie with your peers. And Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, working side-by-side side in the trenches with other people, sharing the same challenges, struggles, triumphs, all that sort of thing. And it just elevates the industry as a whole. Yep, no question. Now, you have a ProStart program in your state as well. We do. Um, we have uh, almost 60 schools that are part of our program, um, and uh, it's it's a thrill every day when we have those interactions with the schools, with the teachers, obviously, who uh, give their time and, and lead the programs, and then, of course, the students who are the real stars. Next week, we'll have our celebration of the stars where we hand out um, our scholarships that uh, we organize uh, for many of the schools around Ohio and the surrounding states for the students. And uh, it's such a great night to teach young people who have worked hard and gotten through their program and uh, they have an opportunity to get a scholarship to go off for culinary school or to hospitality management school and further their career. That's absolutely a critical role for the Restaurant Association and uh, we're so proud of it. And all of us that have the opportunity to be involved in these events, you come away from it saying, that. It really is. Yeah. I mean, I've witnessed yeah. it at the NRA level at, you know, the major shows as well as in our, our home state here in Maine. Is there somewhat of a bridge, would you say, between ProStart and these kids that are in high school right now and restaurants that are looking for staff where they can give hands-on experience to these kids that are also learning in the classroom? Yeah. Many of our uh, students will go and they'll start working part-time in, in a restaurant while they're in school and while they're learning skills. And they learn culinary management skills. So think about if you're a restaurateur and you have an opportunity to get this, this kid who's already shown this inclination to take, you know, the pro start path and they're starting to build these skills and you can bring them into your restaurant. Those are 
potentially future career moments for yes. somebody. And um, this is so important. In fact, we've made it the number one area of focus for, a, we have an education foundation, so it's our 501c3 within the Ohio Restaurant Association. Workforce development, connecting ProStart, and maybe even pushing down a little bit earlier than, than uh, juniors and seniors, which is primarily what ProStart is. Pushing down into those earlier years and having uh, young people identify hospitality and restaurants as a possible place to be. Connecting that then with, uh, we have uh, built a college consortium. So it's a program that we've invited all the schools in the state of Ohio that somehow have a hospitality program, a culinary program, some sort of you know post high school training available. Could be certificate programs, could be the state uh, state uh, uh, state colleges or uh, the community colleges. So we've built this this year, and the idea is we take ProStart and connect this next learning opportunity, and then we have our members who have the jobs. So we're connecting all those dots and starting to build that out as a strategy and a set of tactics in the early days, but we're pretty excited about it. And of course, we're working with the state of Ohio here, and there's several programs around the state that are trying to do the same, same kinds of things. And what we're trying to do is bring it all together and make that pipeline more real for young people so they can see a potential future and we can help them get there. That's one solution to this challenge. And I think that's a wonderful thing you're doing. It's fantastic. And these are the kids that are motivated too. You know, you can see they've got that fire in the belly. They want to, they've got a passion for what they're doing. They want to learn as much as they can and they want to go places and they are. Right. Tremendous. John, what advice do you have for independent operators out there that are, you know, just trying to get ahead and struggle to compete in this very challenging business? What's your best advice to them? Surround yourself with very good people. I know it's not so simple, but, but that really is what it is. You, 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 most people who have made this decision already has, already have made the decision. They have the fire, they love the industry. They typically like culinary. Um, uh, and so that's, you gotta have that, that's foundational. And then if you don't have the other skill sets, make sure you find some people around you to fill those other skill sets. And, and it's okay. You, you, don't, you may not know about building buildings, you don't know about leases, you don't know about counting, that's okay. That's why you go out and get, get people around you you truly trust and be very careful you know, who you hire and negotiate. And that's why the State Restaurant Association, we can help you with that to make it easier for you. Well, is there anything we missed, John, that you still want to tell the audience that we didn't cover that you think is relevant or important? Um, I talk you know, a lot about this lifelong learning. and spoke about it a bit with ProStart. And um, I believe in it so much that I teach. And so I've been uh, on the staff at Ohio State and Fisher College of Business since 2011 as a, as a professor and continue to do that. And uh, one of the nice things about being involved that I, I'm able to connect the dots between what I'm doing in my classroom with what I uh, see in our ProStart program and then some of the work that is occurring here at the Restaurant Association. So occasionally I actually have my teams, my, I, I teach an MBA program, so I get my teams to actually help us with some research here at, at the uh, at the ORA, about a year ago, the team worked on looking at our brand and our social media and our website. And they will present that information to us, and they look at it through the lens of the, the way a consultant would. And um, that's a real benefit to get you know, young people who are extremely bright. These are people who've already had multiple jobs, and you know they've had a they're very successful start to their career. And they're going back to get their masters. They're brilliant. Uh, they don't maybe have 20 years of experience yet. Maybe they have 10. But they can they know how to analyze things and be you know, the critical thinking and come back and give you feedback and i have them my students do that for lots of many companies uh, around ohio including some of the other boards i'm on and so i try to connect the dots and, and make it real for them so I, I give them real world examples and assignments and uh, usually they usually tear it up and do a great job it's got to be very gratifying for you to give back in that way it's one that i you know didn't uh, think about much when I was a younger person, but you know, as you start to get a little bit older, you think about, well, what would I have liked to do when I was that age? What would, would I have liked to have that opportunity? And, um, and so it's a way to, to make that happen. Well, John, you've been a tremendous guest and you've given our audience the benefits of your numerous decades of experience in this business. There's so much that I learned from it and I think it, it was a tremendous episode. So that was the Restaurant Rockstars podcast and we'll see you again next time.
Now, that was a fantastic episode. I absolutely love getting in the trenches with veteran industry people. I have a passion for this business. It's clear to me that John has a long-standing passion for this business as well. And that's really what it's all about, you know, helping each other with the problems we face in running restaurants every day. This is a fellowship, you know, of operators and that's really what we're trying to bring you with RestaurantRockstars.com. So make sure you check out the website. We have lots of free resources, whether they be blogs or 160 now archived podcast episodes. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to tell others. You can subscribe to it for free on iTunes, but tell your other operator um, friends or fellows all about the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. Again, 160 archived episodes live on our website, all arranged by topic and date. So if there's any challenge you're having, chances are you're going to find the topic there. So head on over to restaurantrockstars.com. We also feature turnkey solutions to staff training, as well as starting your first restaurant and how to maximize profits in a restaurant. Check it out. And thanks for watching. Thanks for listening to the Restaurant Rockstars podcast. For lots of great resources, head over to restaurantrockstars.com. And while you're there, download a copy of the book, Rock Your Restaurant. It's a game changer. See you next time.